Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Ravinder, would you like to tell us all about that fancy chat room of yours, please? It's a very practical chat room. Actually, we have lots of fun in there. It's very easy to get in there and add your ideas and ask your questions. I always learn a lot from the other people in there and it just as I said um, adds a whole new dimension to the information being shared on the air uh, so if you are able to please do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat if you can't join us right now because you're driving in which case I would ask you not to join us right now then you know you can always uh come back to it afterwards and then you know if we posted any additional information in there any urls or any you know access to anything in particular um, you can still get hold of that information so do come join us provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat all right in this week's spotlight i wish to consider a special anomaly one that many people have experienced one that challenges the materialistic view of life and that is the nature of miracles on Monday of this week, I read a CNN story about an eight-year-old boy named J.T., who claims an angel helped him lift a car from his father's chest. CNN reported the story this way. It happened last summer while Stephen Parker and his sons, J.T. and 17-year-old Mason, were working on a Toyota Prius at their home in Sugar City, Idaho. Mason had got inside after cutting his hand, and when Stephen went to adjust an axle, the car collapsed on him. J.T. was the only one around who could hear him. I yelled to J.T. on the other side of the car, Jack it up quick, jack it up quick, Stephen recalled. I couldn't move at all, I was totally trapped, and then I passed out. It was all in his hands, and I thought, this is it. There's no way he can jack up this car because it took my 17-year-old son and I both to jack it up the first time. But that wasn't going to stop JT from trying. After adjusting the car jack, JT began jumping up and down on the jack's handle. And even though he only weighs 50 pounds, the car began to slowly rise off his father. After jacking the car up, JT ran to get Mason, who called 911. In the 911 call recording, Mason can be heard telling his father that he needs to keep breathing. I know it hurts, but you got to do it, Mason urges. Breathe, breathe, breathe. I can't, his father responds. Stephen Parker was in critical condition when a helicopter flew him to Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center. He had 13 broken ribs, but no internal damage. Once they'd returned from the hospital, Stephen asked J.T. to try to jack up the car once more, but the boy didn't have 
the superhuman strength anymore. When asked how he did it, JT responded, Angels. Just how common are miracles? The fact is, we often hear of miracles in the media. I well remember reflecting on the common occurrence of miracles in my book, What Does That Mean? Exploring Mind, Meaning, and Miracles. Indeed, I remember one night drifting off to sleep, reflecting on unexplained events in my own life, wondering, what does that mean? The next morning as I dressed, I heard someone on the television in the next room saying, It's amazing. The window washer fell 500 feet and he lived. That story and more next. I asked myself, what does that mean? What does it mean to the window washer? The question, what does that mean, ultimately comes down to, what does it mean to you? Some might insist that it was the adrenaline that made it possible for JT to lift the car from his father's chest, and perhaps it was. But then, perhaps it was something else. I also remember a story shared with me one night during a radio interview. A small child was riding with his family on a rainy night when the car slid and went off the edge of a cliff, falling more than a 100 feet to the bottom and killing all the occupants. The small child did not go off the cliff, and he was not injured. When law enforcement asked the boy how he got out of the speeding car, his answer, a giant hand reached in and pulled me out. I think we often forget just how miraculous life itself is, and I know we tend to push out of our minds those things we can not explain. I would urge you to watch for the miracles because when you do, you find them and this enriches our lives. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder? It does indeed enrich our lives. I think it's just a fascinating subject. I remember when you were writing, what does that mean? And I, you know, I was reading bits of it and I was editing bits of it. Um, and you have some simply incredible stories in there. Um, the whole process that you actually go through in taking all your experiences and all those miraculous events and how the impact that has had on your life. I mean, that is all fascinating and interesting. But what was even more fascinating was the effect it had on me. And it helped me to remember things. I don't know why it is that we tend to forget these miraculous things. Um, of course, there are some things that can be explained away, like adrenaline, you know, that tends to be a common explanation for the type of story that you just shared. But there are lots of things that come along that don't have any explanation. And you're totally right. The more you pay attention to these things, the more you discover what, how it impacts your life or what it is that you're supposed to do. It brings an extra dimension of value to existence as a, you know, there's definitely more to life than shoes and ships and sealing wax. Yep, and it throws a little bit of Oz, the seasoning into life, and I think that invigorates all of us. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Peter Skinner, and we discussed his book, Ethics in the Real World. Marjorie wrote, I don't agree with everything Skinner has to say, but he certainly has thought his points out well. CB commented, you know, I did that again. It's Professor Peter Singer. 
his writing is so similar to B.F. Skinner. I, all right, I apologize if you're listening, Professor Singer. <clears throat> That's one, I, you know, again. CB commented, I think that charity is a good thing, but I wonder about the utilitarian emphasis that Singer promotes. Richard wrote, ethics is understandable merely from an evolutionary standpoint. It's concerned with the well-being of the tribe. Why is it that any form of spirituality is necessary for it concerned about the well-being of the tribe? Moving on, Tracy wrote, I listened to your Ultra Success, Health, Wealth, and Fountain of Youth program on my daily hikes. I noticed immediately that I had the energy to move faster and go for longer hikes. I started craving more fruits and vegetables. I also noticed I feel happier. There's a huge difference in my attitude. I listen every day and started to notice a difference within two weeks. Julie wrote, I can say since I started listening to your Intertalk CD, have it all, that my life has changed. I tell everyone I know to visit your website and try it out. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, with our guest, Professor Larry Rosen. Now, Professor Rosen has been with us before, but for those of you who may have missed our first conversation, let me tell you a little bit about our guest. And actually, that first conversation you had, Ravinder. I did indeed. Because we were out doing, you know, the work in the convertible, talking about, you know, the great, the, the big step, the giant leap for mankind. Remember? And we got stuck up in, in the indeed. Zions area with auto problems, couldn't get to the phone. So you handled that interview and we listened to it all the way in. Great job. Dr. Larry Rosen is Professor Emeritus and past chair of the psychology department at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He is a research psychologist with specialties in multitasking, social networking, generational differences, parenting, child and adolescent development, and educational psychology, and is recognized as an international expert in the psychology of technology. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Rosen and his colleagues have examined reactions to technology among more than 70,000 people in the United States and in 22 other countries. He has written six books and writes a technology column for the newspaper, The National Psychologist, and regularly blogs for the magazine Psychology Today and The Huffington Post. Dr. Rosen has been featured extensively in television, print, radio, and media, and has been a commentator on The Daily Show, Good Morning America, NPR, and CNN. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Larry Rosen. Thanks for having me again. Uh, it's our pleasure. You know, I, the last time you were on this show, I was listening to you uh in a 1969 Chevrolet Supersport convertible that we had taken out on the road because it's like a moving billboard uh, to talk to people about the moonwalk because I was working on a paper having to do with what people really believed that giant leap for mankind was. I was supposed to interview you from Bryce Canyon. Everything was all arranged, but then we ran into auto problems, and we couldn't make it there. We ended up listening to the interview. It was a great interview, by the way, a great interview. Thanks. 
All right, I should mention at the top that you co-wrote The Distracted Mind with Adam Gasly, who is a professor of neurology, physiology, and psychiatry at UC San Francisco. How did teaming up with Professor Gasly enhance or add to the material in your book, sir? Well, I'm a psychologist and a research psychologist, not a clinical psychologist, and I've written a lot about psychology in the past, but... When it came to talking about distraction and why we get so distracted, I realized that in addition to talking about the psychological impact, it was important to talk about how our brain acted. And I had seen Dr. Ghazali speak at a conference and was incredibly impressed both with his research, which is um, amazing and very clear and very definitive, but also his style. Uh, He just had a very easy style comfortable. He spoke to a crowd of about 500 people and kept our attention. Um, I rarely take notes at conferences, and I found myself taking voluminous notes on what he had to say. And when I was looking for a co-author, I remembered that I'd heard him, and he took a look at uh, what I'd written in the past and took a while to think about whether he really was interested in taking a break from his busy um, neurology practice and research lab. And I was glad to hear that he was willing to do it. Uh, it took us about six months to write the book together, and it was a wonderful experience. That's great. Now, the, the title of your book, The Distracted Mind, and you kind of touched on this, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, suggests that our brains are perhaps ill-equipped to deal with today's ever-evolving technology. Is that how you see it, Professor, or is it really just a matter that, you know, of adaptability? Our brains are very interesting. Um, our brains are about the same as they were a long time ago, and yet our world has changed dramatically. Um, Our brains were equipped to handle the influx of information, but I don't believe our brains were able to handle the the massive amount of information and communication that comes through this gizmo that we keep in our pocket 24-7-365. And I, I really think that it's a unique time in our history that we are all dealing with a surplus of connection in our world and that our brains may not be capable of handling this in a way that keeps our focus and attention on our real world and yet allows us to take the benefits of what our virtual worlds offer us. Okay, but now, you know, there are folks, I mean, most parents out there and definitely all the grandparents are going to say, look, younger minds seem to come into this world already wired, adapted to the technology, or at least, you know, that's that's what it appears to. So is there some advantage, some evolutionary advantage, perhaps, that does indeed give younger folks a leg up other than the typical learning curve differences that accompany age and maturity? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question because um, what we do see in in our work and in anecdotal evidence that young kids adapt very quickly to the, the tapping environment of a smartphone, say, or, or a tablet. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their brains are equipped to handle it any better. Uh, I think, as I said to my class this morning, um, I think we're all part of a big experiment here and that we aren't really going to know what impact this has or what kind of changes we're seeing in our brain until maybe 10, 20 years down the road when we see what these young kids are like as they get out into the real world. Um, I do believe that there are major benefits 
to being facile at all this technology. On the other hand, a lot of the research out there is showing there's, that there are major limitations that happen. And, and one of them, quite honestly, is that our brains just aren't equipped to handle the massive amount of influx of sensory information um, the same way that we would like our brain to handle it. We'd like to be able to handle all the input, all the visual, all the auditory, all the tactile, all the shaking and moving of our phones, and do it comfortably and easily. Uh, and, and it appears we are not doing a very good job of that. Okay, well... And it seems like maybe there's a bit of a paradox here. Let me, there's a two-part question I've got, but I'll, I'll, let, let me take part one. We have an, you know, an evolutionary survivalist need to access information. That's kind of who we are. I mean, we forage for information all the time. That's, that's what food foraging is about. The, the novelty of information itself can trigger reward dopamine system. So it would seem to me that this alone could, lead to an addictive kind of behavior. Do you think our so-called smart devices can be literally addictive in the true sense of the word because of this reward feedback loop? If we are truly using our devices to to get pleasurable feelings, and I, I put that in quotes because, as I'll explain, I'm not sure that most of us are doing that, but if we are using our devices to gain pleasurable feelings, then what technically should happen in order to, to make it a, an addiction is that we should, first of all, need more and more of it to get the same feeling, which some people do. Um, and second of all, we should find that it interferes greatly in other parts of our life, which some people feel it does. On the other hand, I have trouble distinguishing an addiction um, what people refer to as like a smartphone addiction or technology addiction or Internet addiction from an obsession or a compulsion. And a lot of what we see in our work is that what drives our behavior tends to be what some people call FOMO, fear of missing out. But I think that's a misnomer. It's really an anxiety about staying connected. Um, we are at a unique juncture in our, in our evolution where we are connected to more people more of the time virtually than we are connected to people in the real world. And because most people in this world right now have a virtual presence online, they have an email address, they potentially text, they chat, um, and most certainly they have uh, some form of interaction with social media, these are all obligations. And as obligations... um, we start to get anxious if we don't check in often enough. We find, of course, that younger people get more anxious and more quickly. But other people, even us old people like myself, get anxious about not checking in often enough. We feel if we don't look at Facebook, we're going to miss something important, and it's going to fall off the end of our wall. We feel if we don't respond to a text message, somebody's going to take it as a negative as we're slighting them. So we jump on a text message. So we're really at at this kind of crazy time in our life where we are more connected yet more disconnected. You know, I want to explore that that whole idea of social uh, interaction, relationships, etc. But 
but before we go down that road, I want to come back to the brain for a minute and, and the influence that this technology has on our brain. Um, just yesterday, I read that uh, a new study using a GPS navigation system to get your destination appears to switch off parts of the brain that would otherwise be used to stimulate, you know, different routes. Uh, the study that I read um, involved 24 volunteers who navigated a simulation of the Soho in central London while undergoing brain scans. If if there are areas of the brain, as with GPS, that will literally shut off, what other effects does the use of technology have on the brain itself? Well, that is the million-dollar question, Alvin. That is the million-dollar question. Um, I, I can tell you that there's research um, that shows that technology can enhance our brain function. Um, Dr. Ghazali has done a really fascinating study where he, he's taken um, a game that he created and given it to older adults in their 60s, 70s, and I believe even 80s, and had them play this, this game, which basically practice, gives them practice on multitasking and has them play the game for, I believe, 15 hours over a six-week period and then come back into the lab. And he finds, first of all, not only are they better at multitasking, and they're also better at other kind of executive functioning tasks, problem-solving, decision-making, lack of, of impulsivity. But when he scans their brains, the front part of their brain has changed. Now, how it's changed is it has more activity in it. So they've actually, the practicing of multitasking has enhanced the ability of the front part of your brain, which is the, the part of your brain that's your executive controller, that's your boss that runs the rest of your brain, it's enhanced that part of your brain so that you become better at functioning in the world. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, as far as the GPS study goes, there, this is one of many studies, and, and brain scanning is in its infancy, so we're still learning about it. Um, I, I would contrast another brain scanning study that was done on taxi drivers in London who found which found that because a taxi driver in London has to memorize thousands of, of strange streets that start and stop, um, they scanned taxi drivers' brains and found that areas of the brain that had to do with memory were actually enhanced in taxi drivers compared to comparable people of the same age and background. So there are, there are pluses and minuses to this technology. You know, and when you say that, I think of gaming. As you know, I, a lot of parents will ask me, um, "What should I do with my kids?" That you know, they want to get on the computers and they want to, they want to do, uh, uh, they they want to become involved in uh, MMOPs, uh, MMORPs. There we go, uh, multiplayer online games, and uh, some of them are shooter games and. And when you look at the research, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you look at the research, there's kind of conflicting info here. We have research that says, it, you know, young people will model aggressive behavior and become more aggressive later in their life if they're exposed to it early. But we also have research that shows that it enhances their motor skills and their memory and cognitive abilities. So... What would you tell a parent who said, should I allow my children to become involved in playing games like RuneScape and, and so forth, uh, these multi-online player games? Well, 
I, I always recommend that parents, um, when they first introduce any form of technology or allow their kids to, to be introduced to any form of technology, practice what's called co-viewing, which means that they do it together. And the parent gets a sense of the, the game, in this case the game, or the website or the social media site or wherever it is that their, that their child or teenager is getting involved in, and decide for themselves whether this is healthy or not. Um, past that, I think it's very important for parents to not allow their kids to use technology more than about 90 minutes at a time for older kids and 30 minutes at a time for younger kids because it's just too overly stimulating, regardless of whether it's a shooter game or something uh, less, less aggressive like a mine, Minecraft kind of game or something right. like that. I think it's really important that for your brain function that you don't play continuously for long periods of time because we don't know what that does to your brain, but there's enough evidence that it may not be good for your brain that it's recommended that you, don't, you simply don't get hooked into that. Um, as far as the aggression goes, that's really an open question. Um, there's probably an equal amount of research studies that show that playing aggressive games is bad for you, and an, another equal amount of, of research showing that it's not necessarily good for you but doesn't have negative effects. So I right. think it's one of those areas that we're still working on. All right, we've got a hard break coming up. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about uh, some of the Korean games. We've got some professional gaming that goes on, and these Korean players will play at sunup to sundown. And the impact of that extended uh, play, uh, both on the mind and on the body, okay? We're speaking with Professor Larry Rosen about his book, The Distracted Mind. You can learn more about our guest by visiting the website, drlarryrosen.com. One word, drlarryrosen.com. We have a video in our chat room today of our guest addressing inattention blindness. Be sure to get on over to the chat room if you're not there now, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Is this the real 
landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a Go little high, little low. Anyway, the wind blows, doesn't really matter to me. To me, Baba just killed a man, put a gun. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Larry Rosen about his book, The Distracted Mind. It's a great read. I suggest you all get a copy of this one and take a look at it. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, drlarryrosen.com. That's R-O-S-E-N. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. By now, you know music psychology is a new hobby of mine. And um, has practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, we just played some of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. So please tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, first of all, I was raised in the turbulent 60s. And um, music was a major force in my life growing up. I mean, I, I had a stereo player that used to drive my parents crazy, um, going all day and all night. And I think that music has a special place for me. Um, it, I, it actually, it turned out I heard this song. Um, I'd never heard of the band Queen, and I heard this song on an airplane of all places where they had the old-time thing where they just had a music set that they played for you, and you played it over and over. And... I was charmed by this song. I didn't understand it, uh, and I decided that it was important for me to figure out what the heck they were saying. And I fell in love with the song, with its meaning, um, with the struggle between between good and bad, and and between heaven and hell. And um, I became an instant Freddie Mercury and Queen fan. So did you conclude it's an illusion, it's good, it's bad? What, what did you conclude? I concluded that, like with all music, it's massively open for interpretation. Uh, and, and I've read numerous interpretations of that song, and um, they, they vary as to, as to sort of the, the, 
where that falls on the, the good and evil continuum. Um, I think it's a struggle. I think that's what it's saying, is there's a struggle in life between being good and being not good, and that we all it's all inside of us. This is an extreme example, but that, that struggle is always there, and we have to be aware of it. Powerful symbology, powerful symbology. Okay, I have a selfish question, and the question I alluded to before we went to break. Uh, my son, uh, I've, 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 my youngest is a senior in high school, uh, goes to Gonzaga Prep. He's a 4 student. Uh, he's been accepted into the pre-science program at uh, the Public Ivy, the University of Washington, and we're very, very proud of him. But he's also a pro StarCraft player. And uh, he was accompanying me in the car when we listened to your last interview with my wife, Ravinder. And he wanted very desperately to ask you about the notion of uh, how long you should play a game. Because he's been pro since he was 16 years old. We did allow him, and I did play with him, as you had recommended, stayed there, became familiar but this is a game that the Koreans take very, very seriously. And when he recently went to Philadelphia to compete in a tournament where he went top 40 in the world, um, he uh, met all these Koreans that did nothing but play sun up to sundown. According to him, some of them will pass out. They've played so long and gone so long without rest or water. <clears throat> What kind of influence does that have on an individual, sir? Well, first of all, um, it, it, just just to give a little uh, con, a little bit of context for all of this, um, the major seat of of video game playing is in Asia, as well as the major seat of research and treatment for internet addiction. Um, and gaming addiction, and it's it's not a coincidence. Um, there, when gaming started, um, and you could play games with other people, um, it caught on really quickly in in many of the Asian nations, and um, they they created video gaming parlors where kids would come after school, and just as you described, they would play and play and play until they either dropped dead, which some did, or just passed out from exhaustion. Um, there's, there's lots of evidence of the negative impact of this in the long run, but I think one of the most interesting pieces of evidence was presented um, at a conference I was at by a Dr. Kim, who's the leading expert in the negative impacts of online gaming from South Korea. And he explained to the audience through an interpreter that it has become such a problem that um, parents are sending their kids away for treatment to treatment centers all over South Korea as well as the rest of Asia because it has become an addiction. It is be- and as I explained earlier, um, you know it's an addiction. One of, the, one of the facets of addiction is that you need to do more to feel the same way. And so what would happen with these kids is they would start playing, and then they would need to play more and more and more until there were no more hours in the day, and they couldn't reach that, that state of pleasure that they were getting. Um, and that's usually when the, uh, the body falls apart and the psyche falls apart with it. 
Interesting. Now, again, a selfish question. I advise my son to be happy with top 40, that uh, he does not want to spend that kind of time. Uh, this particular game, StarCraft, is, you know, what counts. It's a strategy game if you're not familiar with it, and uh, you're building resources and military and da-da-da-da-da. Um, so it, it, it is a warring game in that sense, but it's also dependent upon actions per minute. And where my sons are, you know, 200 actions or so, I think it's 300 actions, whatever it is. Uh, some of these players are just they're incredibly good at it. So my advice to him was, you know, make a choice. What's most important to you? You know, is it more important to to become like them or is it more important to be the person that you are or separate yourself from um, you know, this this kind of addiction possibility, because I did suggest to him that it would be an addiction. Is that sound advice, or what, what advice would you give him? He's, he's listening. <laughs> well, first of all, um, online gaming addiction, interestingly enough, um, is probably going to make it into the next um, psychiatry diagnostic manual as, as a form of addiction. Um, it was in the, in the most recent version, it was put in the appendix, which means they're recommending more study, but but presuming that more people research it, um, it will end up having a diagnostic category, which is really astounding. For uh, it's the first technology-related um, psychiatric issue. Um, my concern is from the brain's perspective. Um, our our brains are fine at handling all of the sensory stimulation that he's getting from the game. And, and literally, he's getting stimulation for all of his brain. He's getting the auditory cor- cortex stimulated, the visual cortex, his prefrontal cortex, his hippocampus, his amygdala. Um, every part of his brain is being stimulated. And part of what happens is we tend to get overstimulated. And so one of my recommendations is that we never play more than about 90 minutes at a, at a sitting. And that then we take a break. And for young kids, I recommend only 30 minutes. But for older kids, like your son, 90 minutes should be the max, maybe two hours at the absolute max, at which point it should be followed by some activity that allows the brain to calm down. Um, Meditation works wonderfully. Uh, Going out in nature turns out to work wonderfully. And it only takes maybe 10 or 15 minutes to get your brain's activity calmed down, at which point then you can resume playing again. But I think you have to be aware of when you're starting to habituate to this and you're starting to feel as though you need more time to get those same good feelings. Because even though it's not a diagnostic category addiction, um, it is very, so similar to an addiction that we can apply the, the criteria for addictions to this new phenomenon of an online gaming addiction. Right. Uh, and I think it's really important to recognize that, that doing it too much time straight is just too overwhelming for our brains. They just weren't made to handle all the stimulation. All right. Moving on. One of the reviewers of your book offered this description, quote, overwhelming evidence for why cultivating moment-to-moment awareness of our outsized and addictive distractibility in the digital age. I have a two-part question, sir. The first part, do we need to cultivate a moment-to-moment awareness? And the second part, if so, why? Well, part of, part of what I think is happening in our world is that we are not aware 
of what technology is doing to us. Um, I mean, there are, there are countless examples that I can give you that have evolved so quickly in our culture. Um, for example, something called phantom pocket vibration syndrome, where you will feel a tingling in your pocket, and you will assume now instantly that you are getting um, a vibration from your phone, uh, which would be some sort of notification or alert, and so you grab your phone out of your pocket, or maybe your phone's not even in your pocket, but you still feel your pocket vibrating. The interesting thing is that less than 10 years ago, the same stimulus on our legs would have been interpreted by our brain as an itch that needed to be scratched. Now it's interpreted as a connection. And so that's one issue that we definitely need to be aware of. But we also just need to be aware of, of our obsession with technology, our choices of using it when, when we're with other people. Um, if, you, if you go to a restaurant and you look around a restaurant, you'll see that almost every person has a phone on the table, meaning that they're willing to be distracted by their phone and what's inside their virtual world rather than be attentive to the people with, around them. Um, you see parents, mothers and fathers with their kids at the park, and the kids are playing with, at the park, and the parents have their face down into the phone. You see young people no longer putting their phone in their pocket. They carry it in their hand so that that vibration can be instantaneously responded to. Um, all of these are signs that, that we need to be more aware and more cognizant of the import that we are playing on what's inside the box at the expense of what's in our real world. All right. So by becoming moment-to-moment -moment aware, what you're suggesting is that we become aware of our behavior with our devices or we separate our devices in order to become uh, aware of the environment that we're living in? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I think that we have to uh, we have to recognize that we live in two worlds now. We all do. We live in a real world and a virtual world. Um, the real world is what's important. We can certainly get a lot out of our virtual world. We can have friends online. Um, we can even feel empathy from our friends online. turns out that that empathy is really maybe one-fifth or one-sixth as good at making us feel supported as empathy in the real world, but it's still empathy. And, and we all know anybody who's on Facebook knows that when it's your birthday, you get dozens of, of happy birthday messages, and it makes you feel good, um, even though you know that everybody was alerted that today was your birthday, so of course they're going to wish you a happy birthday. Um, it may take 20 or 30 of those to make you feel just as good as if your best friend came up, gave a big hug, and said, Happy birthday. Um, we really all now forever are going to have one foot in each of these worlds. The issue becomes then balance. Um, you don't want to be too sucked into the virtual world um, to the extent that you lose track of what's going on in your real world. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to be so sucked into your real world that you don't take advantage of what the virtual world can offer you in terms of connections, in terms of information. Uh, what's happening, unfortunately, is that we are all acting as though we look like we have a, an attention deficit disorder. That phone beeps, that phone vibrates, that phone makes a ringing sound, and it, our heart literally skips the beat. 
prepares you for checking it. And if we don't check it, we start to get anxious. So we have to find that balance where we can be attentive to that virtual world, but with the caveat that it's not real. We we have talked a lot about, you know, the impact of uh, the device on the brain uh, and and perhaps individual behavior, at least addictive or compulsive uh, behavior. Um, but you, you bring up a good point. When you start talking about, you know, parents at the playground with their heads in the phone or you're at the dinner table and every there are many people today that see our social fabric completely changing because we're not really relating uh, on a one-on-one with people. We've got both of our feet in the virtual world, even though we may be sitting across from an individual. What is your observation about the impact on our social uh, relationships? Well, the best I can explain to you is that the relationships in and out of the virtual world or in and out of the real world are different. Um, in the real world, we can avail ourselves of all of the cues that the other person provides to us. We get their words, we get their facial expressions, we get their body movements, we get their body language, we get all the cues that we pick up both naturally and sort of artificially surrounding them. We can even, some people believe that we pick up auras from people. When we're communicating with someone in the virtual world, a lot of those cues fall away. Um, contextually, we're not aware of the person's feelings. We're not necessarily aware of their body language. Um, what we get really are their words, and that's it. And so I think that you cannot exist in a virtual world um, for long without availing yourself of what friendship and relationships in the real world have. There's a really interesting study that was done with kids where in California, all kids in the fifth grade go to an uh, outdoor camp for a week somewhere during the school year. And um, one study that was done by Yalda Ulls, who's a professor at UCLA, um, looked at kids going up to a camp on a particular week, gave them a test before they went up to camp, which consisted of looking at pictures of people's facial expressions and trying to judge what emotions they were showing. Then they, the kids spent five days at this camp without any screens. They aren't allowed to have screens at these camps. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the five days, they looked at those pictures again and judged the emotions again. After just five days, they were better at judging the emotions from those pictures than they were when they went to camp. So that suggests that something about having screens makes it even more difficult to judge emotions of people from their facial expressions. So we really need to be cognizant that, that we live in a real world, that we're going to work in a real world, that we, we um, deal with other people in this real world, and that we need to remember that we have to keep practicing. We have to keep learning what facial expressions mean, what words really mean. Um, and it's important to do that, or we're going to find that we're stuck in the virtual world groping for empathy, groping for understanding when we may not get it there. I've heard a number of young people in in the recent past discuss how difficult it is to uh, communicate with uh, their peers uh, 
because it's a skill that they didn't acquire. And so I guess, you know, you look at this and you see young people more and more uh, have access to computers at earlier and earlier ages, their tablets, their telephones, and then they enter an environment. Maybe it's a schoolroom or maybe it's a church uh, for the first time, and they and they lack these skills and abilities. What do you tell parents to do to promote that? Absolutely no more than 30 minutes at a time on technology and then five times the amount of that time off technology preferably doing two things. One, communicating, um, playing with friends, playing with parents, relatives, older brothers and sisters, so you can learn those communication niceties. Um, but also a lot of creative free play. Um, dump out a box of Legos, let your kids build something. Don't follow directions, let them be creative. Tap that into that creativity that doesn't or may not get tapped into in their virtual world. And certainly spend a lot of extra time off technology practicing communication. Um, those are two critical skills that kids with their face down into a screen are simply not going to get. Okay. <clears throat> Professor, if you had one message that you wanted to communicate to everybody as a result of this show, what would it be? Um, that we have, have lost the ability to focus for any length of time. Um, we have allowed ourselves to be distracted, particularly by this device that we carry in our pocket or purse. And what we have to do is recognize what it's doing to us and recognize that we need to practice focusing. We need to pull back a little, not give up technology because there's a lot of great that come from technology, but learning to focus for periods of time will be helpful in so many ways in learning, in our relationships, in our work environment, in our school environment, everywhere demands focus. And if we don't learn again how to focus, how to attend, um, we're going to see trouble down the road. I have so many other questions. Ravinder had so many other questions. Uh, you know, I, 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 we're, we're going to ask you to come back. I mean, we didn't even get into some of the problems of multitasking, etc., but the book, um, The Distracted Mind, I want to encourage all of you to go out and get the book. Uh, you want to read this. If you're a parent, you definitely want to read this book. But I think any of us connected to technology, and we all are today, and it's impossible to raise a child uh, not connected. And they're going to see a television and iPad, iPads in schools today. They're all going to be connected. You need to read this book, The Distracted Mind. Uh, Professor Rosen, I appreciate very much you coming to the show, your willingness to share with us um, what you've learned, and uh, I hope you'll come back again. Thanks. I really appreciated you having me, and it was a very interesting discussion. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself, always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.